1: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Extortion, both high-end and low-end. Vehicles from Honda may soon be rolling off the lot. Social media and open source intelligence, Russian cyber attacks spread internationally. Joe Kerrigan surveys items for sale in dark web markets. Our guest is Jonathan Wilson from Authentics to discuss consumer sentiment around data privacy and preparing for cyber combat. From the CyberWire studios at DataTribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, July 12th, 2022. Yesterday, we described a report by ReSecurity that the Black Cat gang had adopted a quadruple extortion model, The four aspects of the extortion attack are encryption, the threat of doxing, distributed denial of service, and finally, reputational damage achieved by harassing the victim's customers, business partners, employees, and media to tell them the organization was hacked. Bleeping Computer reports that one novel and upscale feature of this newer approach is provision of a searchable database of non-paying victims— the better to expose them to reputational damage. Black Cat may represent the high end of the ransomware as a service market, but that doesn't mean the low rent, simple minds are out of business. By no means. There are still plenty of simpler approaches to cybercrime that require far less talent and attention to detail. Researchers at Signia, for example, report on the activities of the LunaMoth group and these are so low-end that one hesitates to even call them ransomware because where's the where in all this? Lunamoth uses commodity rats against its victims, and it does so opportunistically with little evidence that they're fishing for particular targets. It doesn't bother encrypting data and relies simply on the threat of doxing to extort payment. What's your secret, Lunamoth? How do you do it? Volume. Researchers claim to have demonstrated a proof-of-concept they're calling Rolling pwn," that affects the remote keyless entry systems in Honda models between 2012 and 2022. They say the exploit takes advantage of the keyless entry system's Rolling Code system, which uses a synchronizing counter to prevent replay attacks. The Rolling Code system accepts a sliding window of codes to account for the key fob being pressed accidentally or when it's out of range of the vehicle. The researchers say, by sending the commands in a consecutive sequence to the Honda vehicles, it will be resynchronizing the counter. Once the counter is resynced, commands from the previous cycle of the counter worked again. Therefore, those commands can be used later to unlock the car at will. The researchers worked on Hondas, but they think it likely that other makes are also vulnerable. While there are some reports of others replicating these results, the exploit remains, to say the least, controversial. Honda, for one, doesn't believe it, according to Bleeping Computer. Honda dismissed the proof of concept as old news. A Honda representative emailed Vice to say, I'd hope that you would treat it as such and move on to something current rather than creating a new round of people thinking that this is a new thing. We've looked into past similar allegations— and found them to lack substance. While we don't yet have enough information to determine if this report is credible, the key fobs in the referenced vehicles are equipped with rolling code technology that would not allow the vulnerability as represented in the report. In addition, the videos offered as evidence of the absence of rolling code do not include sufficient evidence to support the claims. So, it's a story worth watching, but so far the prudent verdict would seem to be not proved. In the meantime, push to start, but be safe out there. Turning to Russia's hybrid war against Ukraine, the Telegraph cites a blogger accompanying Russian forces in Ukraine in support of its conclusion that NATO-supplied HIMARS rocket artillery systems have been striking fear into Russian troops. On Monday, Roman Saponkov, a Russian military blogger embedded with frontline Russian forces, wrote on Telegram... Yesterday, I happened to witness a high-Mars strike on Chernobylevka in Kherson, practically in front of my eyes. I've been under fire many times, but I was struck by the fact that the whole packet, five or six rockets, landed practically on a penny. Usually, MLRS lands in a wide area, and at a maximum range, it completely scatters like a fan. It makes an impression I won't dispute that. It is clear that this is just the beginning." They're going to hammer Kursan and other border cities, Belgorod in particular. They will cover all the command posts and military installations they have gathered data on for the past four months. Mr. Saponkov sensibly advises his readers that a single wonder weapon is rarely a war winner. We mention this not so much as an observation on the kinetic phases of the war in Ukraine, as compelling and tragic as those may be, but because Mr. Saponkov's comments on the effects of HIMARS fire are a striking illustration of how hard it is to moderate communication via social media, even where there's a strong motivation to do so and a tradition of censorship to draw upon. Open source intelligence has played a prominent role in the special military operation from the outset. On the eve of the invasion, for example, Foreign observers had a tolerably complete and realistic picture of the Russian order of battle based on posts by Russian soldiers and, for example, by curious Belarusian civilians posting photos of Russian combat vehicles staging through their towns, bumper numbers of the vehicles often clearly visible. This new OPSEC challenge is one all armies will henceforth face to one degree or another, Clearance Jobs quotes security experts on the challenge. Their comments don't neglect the effect too much information can have on service members' careers, but the broader OPSEC lessons are also clear. Dominic Eager, field chief technical officer at Ajuna Security, said, The advent of social media has created a whole other realm of oversharing, tracking, and personal opinion narrative. And he surely has a point. Killnet, the threat actor that represents itself a hacktivist tendency operating in the patriotic interest of Russia, but not under the control of Moscow's security services, has extended its distributed denial-of-service attacks to Polish government sites, the Express reports. As was the case with earlier operations against Lithuania, the most recent DDoS attacks didn't rise above the level of nuisance. Poland has strongly supported Ukraine— both since the invasion and during the tensions that preceded Russia's war. And finally, the hybrid war Russia initiated against Ukraine has prompted considerable reflection on how one raises and trains a cyber army, and even irregulars need training and direction. The record by Recorded Future describes the work of Nikita Nish, a former employee of Ukraine's security service, and founder of the cybersecurity consultancy Hack Control, which has been providing Ukrainians with both advice on self-protection and tips on conducting offensive cyber operations against the Russian enemy. Mr. Nish sees this as a contribution to partisan war against the invader. He dismisses the concerns some have raised about the risks of encouraging hacktivism, even in wartime. He says, "...not attacking your enemy in cyberspace is stupid." In the past, soldiers destroyed logistics and production facilities but now they also attack technology and information. Taking down a network is becoming to 21st century guerrillas what blowing up a bridge was to their 20th century ancestors. Identity security firm Authentics recently shared study data on consumer sentiment around data privacy, looking at issues like preference for security over convenience, corporate responsibility, and trust. Jonathan Wilson is chief risk and compliance officer at Authentics.
2: For me, I think it was a lot of affirmation of you know what I what I was. You know, seeing in our end consumer behavior and and uh, and what our customers were reporting to us, and you know, and that's like you know that you know essentially today's data privacy world is a little bit like the wild west. You know, you you read a lot of the terms and conditions we're we're agreeing to when we open accounts, and there's a lot of room for businesses to liberally collect data, and in many cases, companies are collecting you know troves of data. And they're doing that, perhaps under um, money laundering and suspicious activity laws that permit them to do that. And in some cases, they're taking liberties that perhaps, you know, they're they're not allowed to take. Um, but just the you know the lack of consistent laws and and legislation, you know, across the globe, I think is has created a bit of a, a, a wild west. You know, I I, I noticed you know, coming out of the report that there is this theme of transparency um, that, you know, I think is missing, that consumers, you know, feel is missing. And I believe we've got a long way to go, you know, to get this, you know, the the, the legal and legislative standard raised so that businesses become more transparent about what they are doing and how they're using personal data.
1: Is there a sense of resignation on, on behalf of the users, you know, when when faced with these you know, uh, eulas that are unreadable, you know, too long to to be able to digest. That they feel as though they're they're not really in control of things.
2: You know, I, I think there definitely is that sentiment, uh, Dave. They clearly coming out of the uh, the survey that we did, there were a, a high proportion of the respondents who were feeling like they were a little bit out of control. But I think we are we are seeing the tide turn a little bit. Um, we're seeing, you know, what I'm seeing is consumers begin to take control again of, uh, uh, of their data. There are sites that are dedicated to helping consumers understand who has access to their data and to help automate requesting access to the data that's being held. And I think that, uh, you know, the, the new laws that are, that are emerging, in particular if we look at the U.S. market, you know, there's today there's a handful of states that that have data protection laws. and but there's a handful of states coming out with data protection laws. and And there's also a uh, you know, a federal law that's uh, that's being positioned at the moment. So I think a lot of that is coming from consumers that are, you know, quite frankly, probably fed up with being in a place of not being in control and they want to take back that control, yeah
1: you know, one of the things that I noticed uh, in the report here is that, uh, it seems as though consumers are really looking to the businesses themselves to take responsibility for taking care of a lot of this data.
2: Yeah, very, very clearly they are. I think the consumers are putting the onus on care of the data back where it belongs, really, which is where it's being collected. It's, it's at the business level and at the, uh, at the, you know, the commercial level, the service provider level, and so I think there is an expectation that consumers have that. Um, kind of going back to what I had said a little bit earlier that companies start to become transparent about what they're collecting, why they're collecting it, and what they intend to do with it.
1: Based on the information you've gathered here, what are your recommendations for organizations to you know, align themselves with the desires of consumers?
2: My recommendations would be to understand the the data protection laws that you know that apply to them. But also not just apply to them, but also the data protection laws that you know that exist globally. There are some really good standards out there, such as GDPR, you know in Europe and CCPA uh, on the west u s coast. and you know to to examine them and understand the best practices within them to um, you know to effectively treat uh, customers as they're demanding to be to be treated. I think also, uh, Dave, we can really we can help the situations, and organizations can help the situation by by leveraging and deploying emerging technologies. So there are technologies available such as you know for example, verifiable credentials. And this type of technology puts the power and uh the sovereignty of of the consumer's private information back into their control it allows them to hold it for example on their mobile device and to control when it's when it's shared so identify you know the relevant technology assess it apply it and um to be ready to deploy the emerging technologies which are putting the power back into the hands of the consumers which is really good business
1: are you optimistic that we're heading in the right direction here? Do you do you have a sense that we're gaining ground?
2: I do. I do. I do think we're gaining ground. Um, if I look at uh, what's happening, um, you know, in the U.S. market, I mean, it's clear, Dave, that, you know, the European market has, has a fairly robust set of uh, uh, requirements and, and legislation. But if we look in the U.S., we see... The maturation of data protection laws. Uh, states, again, states that are um, going to be passing their own data protection laws, and we also see movement at the federal level. And I think that companies are starting to see that there are there's some teeth to these data protection laws. You know, we're seeing fines being levied, and uh, companies have really have no choice to just um, you know sit up, take notice, and to take the data protection laws seriously. I do think that um, I do think we're making progress.
1: That's Jonathan Wilson from Authentics. Our lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program, with the largest network of trust centers. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Uh, interesting report uh, came out recently. This is from the folks over at the Privacy Affairs website. This is uh, written by Patricia Rufio. And it is the Dark Web Price Index for 2022. Uh, a lot of interesting data in here, Joe. I thought maybe uh, we could unpack this together.
0: I love these kind of reports, Dave. Yeah? Because I always wondered what is my ID cost on... On the dark web, how much is my email account worth? Yeah. Uh, not much, it turns out. Uh, <laughs> email database dumps, you can get 10 million email addresses for 120 bucks, hmm. right? Uh, and that's for USA email addresses. Okay. Uh, apparently, uh, New Zealand email addresses are a little more uh, pricey. For 600000 it's $110. Yeah. So it's a a lot more per email address. And Canadian email addresses are also more expensive than American email addresses. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have a bunch of different things in here about uh, like hack, getting into hack services. Right. Dave, are you paying for Netflix every month? Like a chump? Because if you, (laughs) if you have $25, you you can get a hack Netflix account that that already has a one year subscription. (laughs) I am paying for a lot of people in my family to watch Netflix. Let me tell you,
1: (laughs) (laughs) not all of them under the same roof. Dave, don't say that. That's not true, of course. No, I, I'm just uh, pl- planting a hypothetical out there. Right, yes. <laughs>
0: yes. Here yes. Want, here's an interesting one. Hulu, they'll sell you a Hulu account for five bucks, but isn't that pretty close to what the price of a Hulu account is if you uh, just get it? Yeah,
1: I think it depends. There are different tiers, I think.
0: Yeah, there's advertising tiers.
1: What's interesting to me in here are the, the, the wide variation of the value of different things. Yes. Some of these I didn't know or expect. Uh, Evidently, passports are quite pricey.
0: They're very pricey. Yeah. Uh, they're like 3800 bucks for a passport here. Mm-hmm. And that's actually another thing. Later, later in the article, there's a list of price changes over time. And passports have come down significantly in cost. Hmm. Uh, a lot of things have come down in cost. In fact, most of the items on this list, including social media accounts, followers, and all that stuff, has come down in price. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, passports are down in price about uh, – Two hundred bucks mm-hmm. from four thousand to thirty-eight hundred bucks, so not a big, not a big drop in price, but they're still very pricey. Thirty-eight hundred dollars. Uh, other IDs have gone up in price. Hmm. Uh, things like a Louisiana driver's license or a New Jersey driver's license. A fake green card is up ten bucks. Uh, yeah, it's uh, a, a European Union national ID averages around one hundred sixty bucks. That's up about forty bucks from last year. US driver's license. I don't know what a US driver's license is.
1: Uh, I mean, <laughs> a driver's license from someone in a US state, I guess. As well, a, to but they another call nation. out different
0: states here. They they call out like a New Jersey driver's license and they have Delaware ID, Indiana ID. I know that Maryland has IDs that are not driver's licenses yeah. that look essentially the same as a driver's license. Right. It just doesn't say driver's license, it says identification card. Mm-hmm. US driver's licenses are up. A Lithuanian passport has gone up uh, almost double. Hmm. Uh, it was fifteen hundred dollars. Now it's thirty eight hundred dollars, like all the other passports. Right. I find the social media section uh, pretty interesting. You know, the most expensive hacked account is a Facebook account. Hmm. Forty five dollars for a hacked Facebook account. Hmm. Okay. Uh, it's only forty bucks for a hacked Instagram account. Twitter accounts are twenty five dollars. Uh, they have a, a hacked Gmail account. That's I don't think that's a social media account, but they're it's here at sixty five dollars. Uh, that makes sense to me. A hacked Gmail account is probably very valuable because that is the keys to the kingdom for that person, hmm. right? That will get you access to all of their accounts if that's their main account. Right. Uh, and you can look through to find out what what kind of services they use and then get access to their services. Yeah. If you want to buy followers, followers are cheap. Spotify <laughs> followers are are a dollar for a thousand of them. Huh. Instagram followers, $4 for a thousand. Same with Twitch. Uh, LinkedIn, if you want to get a thousand people to follow your company, 10 bucks. Hmm. Right. SoundCloud plays.
1: How much to stop having people follow me on LinkedIn?
0: <laughs> <laughs> they can't I don't think they can do that. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. SoundCloud plays, a dollar for a thousand of them. Now that's not a follow. That's that's a one-time event. So that's probably why that's cheap, I guess. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I guess part of what's interesting about this report is just the breadth of things that yeah. are out there. You don't you I think I tend to think about these things in broad categories, but when you see them laid out the detail that they have here. Uh, There really is a market for everything, and it's interesting to me that they're able to get all these prices for these things. You know, looking around on the forums,
0: it's a market. It's a real market. It is a market. They talk about that later in the the article, and they talk about as the marketplace matures, prices decline. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They say sales volume has gone up and prices have gone down. There's a lot more data out there, and one of the comments they make in this section is that there is a larger variety of options Hmm. for people. They've noticed some important operational changes here. Hmm. One, uh, there was a uh, an organization that was a dark market called the White House Market uh, was a clear leader, but they shut that down hmm. uh, in October of 2021, I think. Yeah. They comment that dark web security ops have gotten better. People have become more secure and efficient, but law enforcement security specialists have also become more skillful. Hmm. Dark web operators, uh, site operators, uh, market operators, I should say, dark market operators use uh, better security me- measures throughout the their dark web transactions. Uh, they started using narrow instead of Bitcoin hmm. because of its inherent privacy preserving mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in every transaction. Yeah. Uh, and PGP is the way people communicate. Mm. Okay. So,
1: Makes sense. Yep. Yeah, uh, really interesting report here, and there's so much more detail than we have time to cover here. Again, yeah, it's, it's a, a lot of information that's over important. on the Privacy Affairs website, and it's called Dark Web Price Index 2022. Uh, worth checking out. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. And that's the CyberWire. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Kuru Prakash, Justin Saby Rachel Gelfand, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.